0: Hi, this is Ben Lola back to the Bible Canada. As we continue looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with Dr. John Newfeld, we turn our attention now to Matthew chapter five, verses 27 to 30. Let's listen now to a message called Honoring God with Your Body from our current series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached.
1: Several years ago, a pastor was doing a series on marriage at his church. On one Sunday, he read a note he had received from a woman that actually went to his church. It said, I never worried about getting married. I I left my future to God's will, but every night I hung a pair of men's pants at the foot of my bed, and I knelt down and I prayed this prayer. Father in heaven, hear my prayer, and grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. And he did, she wrote. Well, that week, one of the married women in the church who wasn't there to hear the sermon wrote a note to her pastor. It said, Pastor, what were you preaching about last week? My son came home from church and immediately hung a bikini on the hanger at the foot of his bed. (laughs) Well, today we're going to speak about marriage and sex and desire and commitments. You know, if I entitled this message, Honoring God with Your Body... I've borrowed that title from 1 Corinthians 6.20, which in the NIV simply says, Honor God with your body, and in the ESV it says, Glorify God with your body. That means that our physical body can be used in such a way that our God is praised and worshipped. The context of that passage from 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and since this is so, we are to avoid every form of sexual immorality. Uh, one chapter later, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9, scripture says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, there's nothing wrong with sex. Indeed, God designed it. In fact, there's nothing wrong with sexual passion either, provided it's directed toward your spouse. And this way, you're honoring God, even in the sexual act. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We're studying the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus' famous sermon on the mount, preached at the beginning of his second year of ministry. We've noticed that Jesus is preaching from the Old Testament. We've also noticed that Jesus has a very different view of the Old Testament than the view that was held by the Pharisees. You know, yesterday we examined Jesus' analysis of the sixth command, that command that says you shall not murder. Now there we noticed that the Pharisees wanted this command limited to the actual act of murder, but had ignored the rest of the Old Testament material that led to that command. The Pharisee had missed the deep reverence for life found in the Old Testament and had allowed attitudes of condescension and anger and injustice to remain unchecked. As long as they hadn't actually murdered, that's all the command meant for them. And Jesus, of course, was interested in redeeming the heart. Now, after examining the sixth command, Jesus now moves to the seventh, the command that says, you shall not commit adultery. So let's read today's text, taken from Matthew 5:27 to 30. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You know, in Canada today, marriage is being devalued. For instance, the average age of marriage for a man in 1975 was 25 years of age. Today, it's well over 30. In 1946, right after the war, there were 11 marriages for every 1,000 people. Today that number has dropped to less than 5. In other words, Canadians are over two times less likely to get married than were their grandparents. You know, furthermore, in the last 30 years, the amount of couples living common law has more than doubled. So it's no secret, Canadians are saying that sex and marriage don't go together, or at least they don't anymore. And for many, the Christian advice which says, wait for marriage, is being roundly ignored even by many inside the church. See, I'm fascinated by how many people, even those who say that they are believers, are actually in a sexual relationship outside of marriage. Often they say, you know, I don't understand what the big deal is. You know, this Canadian reality is extremely relevant for us as we read this passage, and I'll tell you why. The passage we've just read speaks about adultery, that is, what we call in our day, cheating on your spouse. It doesn't seem to speak about people having sexual relations out of marriage. From that has come the idea, and I'm now speaking of people who, within a church context, will say that what's really wrong, what's really dishonoring to God, is adultery and adultery only. Jesus' restrictions, they say, seems to be limited. But consider this. In Jesus' day, marriages happened fairly young. You've probably heard Christmas messages that tell us that that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was around 15 when she became pregnant, Joseph was probably a bit older, and almost everyone was married by the time they were 20, and women usually much younger than that, and that they started having babies shortly after that. See, all of life was conceived of in that fashion. Now, I say that because that's why Jesus says more about adultery than extramarital sex. He's speaking in a culture in which almost everyone was married. Oh, I know some were not, but they were the exception. Yeah, Jesus was unmarried, and later on we have every indication that Paul was unmarried, but also it seems that the most likely scenario for Paul was that he was a widower, Peter and the rest of the apostles were all married. And in the case of Jesus, it seems relatively clear that his single state was directly related to his commitment to his special call from God and not simply a lifestyle choice. In other words, his culture was very, very different from ours. Please remember that as we read the passage. Now, furthermore, please also remember that Paul, although he speaks very highly of the decision to remain single, also urges upon people who struggle to contain their sexual urges to get married. Marriage in the Bible is given for more than one reason, but one of those reasons surely was as the only legitimate place to express sexual desire. So, let's understand our words. The Greek word for adultery is moicheo. It refers to sex when one or both of the people in the relationship would be married to someone else. Now, as I've already mentioned, at the time of Jesus, this would have constituted almost all of the adult population from 18 and up. In other words, to read this as a 21st century Canadian, I think, is to misunderstand the entire thrust of the passage. Now, does the Bible speak about more than adultery? Well, yeah, it does. But we're going to wait to discuss that issue in tomorrow's address. For now, let's speak of the issue of adultery and the lust in our heart that gives rise to it. First, let's begin with the statement implicit in the text that we've read. Sex is intended for marriage. Look again at verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. See, yesterday we saw that there was a fundamental difference between Jesus and the Pharisees, and it was this. Jesus believed that individual commands of God could not be taken in isolation from the rest. You couldn't claim that you had not committed a murder when your heart, you still deeply disrespected human life. So when it comes to the issue of adultery, the Pharisees simply took the commandment and taught it in a restricted sense. You were a law keeper if you refrained from adultery. But Jesus believed that to take such a restricted view was to give the wrong impression of what the text intended. Verse 28, it says, but I say to you, that is, in opposition to the restricted teaching of the Pharisees, I say to you that this is the intent of the command. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, what I find fascinating here is that Jesus deliberately ties the seventh command with the tenth. It's found in Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. In other words, you may not take that which is not yours, and more so, you may not even desire to have or to covet what is not yours. But here, and may I say this, here is where every single person begins to encounter what is the real issue. There is within the mind and heart of every fallen human being a war against God, and it is expressed in this fashion. We desire what we may not have. That began with Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit, and it carries on to every piece of forbidden fruit that comes along our path for all of life. It includes everything that does not belong to us, including houses and lands and bank accounts and cars and sparkly things and more. Any assets others have accumulated. And with that, according to the 10th command, is the wife of another man, or for that matter, the husband of another woman. He or she is not yours. And you may not have her, but according to the 10th command, you may not even desire her. You know, here is the command of Jesus. It is not harmless to fantasize in our own head. And here's the question, is it really possible to do what Jesus taught? I'll explain that when we come back.
0: In our culture today, Jesus' message about marriage and sex is certainly even more radical or so it would seem. His words continue to be relevant and meaningful in an increasingly secularized society. And Christians are susceptible to temptation as well. We're reminded of the issue at stake which is that the sin of adultery begins in the mind. So how do we overcome lust and ensure that our lives are marked by purity? Well, stay with us to learn more right after the break. Want a great way to stay connected to all of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada and be encouraged in your faith as well? Well, this year we've launched our latest free resource, Truth and Life magazine, sent out every other month to households across the country. Read engaging articles by Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway of Laugh Again, and many other pastors and guest writers on a variety of topics related to life and faith. Just sign up today if you haven't already. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld.
1: We might look at Jesus' teaching on sexual desire and wonder how what he said is anything more than an ideal. I mean, in the real world, it is just not possible to actually fulfill that. We are, after all, sexual beings, and especially when we're younger and our sexual drive is at its peak. This kind of restriction seems impossible. Are we right? Let me give you a generalization. Like all generalizations, people will see exceptions, and I fear they're going to take exception. But good generalizations allow us to gain some understanding of broad categories. And here's what I think, to be the tendencies of men and women. Men are excited by sight— And women are excited by relationship. Women, men can have sex, and it will be just that, sex. Men, women cannot. Oh, I'm more than aware that a different narrative is being advertised in our day today, but I think we're lying to ourselves. Men and women actually function very differently. The reason that Jesus addressed the man is that the man seems hardwired. To notice a woman by just one look and immediately desire springs to life from a single glance. Let me illustrate that. A number of years ago, Kathy and I, along with another couple, went to an annual motorcycle show in our area. You should have heard our conversation. Both couples had decided to get a motorcycle and have adventure together as couples. The other man and I were drooling looking at the bikes. We said things like, I mean, look at the lines on that bike. Look at how the seat matches the tank. Look at the rear tire. I mean, that's fantastic. Look at the chrome on that bike. Don't you just love a V-twin? I wonder how that would sound because of those gorgeous pipes. I mean, are those from the manufacturer or are those aftermarket? I mean, that's how we talked, I'm going to tell you, for hours. And when I heard what our wives were saying, well, one of our wives said to the other, you know, That one is really suited to having an adventure together with my husband, and that one can handle packing all the stuff that we need, and that one will provide us with, you know, some practical difficulties in this area. And then she articulated what difficulty she was thinking about, and that one seems reasonably comfort to ride on for a long time, and that one makes sense, whereas the other one doesn't. Wow, our conversations really were different. And the reason for the different conversation is the difference between how the male and the female brain is wired. Men are excited by visual stimuli in itself without needing a context to it. Women want more holistic of approach that will include visual, but also relational dynamics, context, feel, emotion, relationship, all of that needs to be there. And pornographers have understood that. See, I I read an article some time ago that talked about how pornographers are designing a new kind of pornography in which what is offered in terms of illicit sex is now connected to a wider relationship and its excitement. It's called pornography designed for women. And the point I'm making is that it really is possible for both a man and a woman to end in the same cesspool, but their pathway there is different. For the man, sight alone, without relationship, but the mere beauty of the female form can excite his desire to have and to claim that which God has forbidden of him. Hence, adultery is ignited in his heart with an amazing speed. But however we get there, the essence of the thing is always wanting something that we can't have. Whether it's the man who's gazing at images, or the woman who's dreaming about the perfect man from the romance novel that she reads, it is pornea. It comes from a dissatisfied heart, a heart that wants what God has said we must not have. But what's to be done about that? See, a man might say, I'll always notice a beautiful woman. Well, of course you will. And that's how you're designed. But that doesn't have to be ending in lust. It was Martin Luther who once said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. So according to Jesus, the issue is not desire, which exists because of our sexuality. The issue is envy. It's covetousness. It's a spirit of dissatisfaction with what God has given us in grace. I'm about to speak explicitly. And if you have small children around, you may want to remove them. And you may wonder why I speak this way, but I think what I offer is effective counsel. See, one thing we can do with our sexual desire is to train it. And if you think about it just for a moment, you're gonna notice how true what I'm about to say is. Think about style, so it doesn't matter. Everything from the style of clothing to the, the color of the clothing that you like to wear, to the rims and the tires on your car, to how you wear your hair. New styles are marketed so that after a while, we all want a new thing. Why is that? Because our tastes have been trained well by the media, by marketers, by recent trends, but we once thought was great, now has been shaped so that we actually desire something else. Now, now men, here is straight talk to you. You can train your desires. If your wife is a brunette, listen, And repeat after me, you love brunettes. If she's a blonde, you love blondes. If she's short, short women turn you on. If she has a full figure, a full figured woman is all that your heart desires. Begin to fill your mind with the idea that the wife that you have is the ideal of beauty that you have, repeat it to yourself. Train yourself in it, and you will find that your desire is for what you have. Sexual desire is one thing, but who you desire is another. See, I once worked with a pastoral colleague who constantly told me of the beauty of his wife. Years later, I did his funeral, and at the funeral, his son-in-law, was uh, recounting his memories with his dad, and he remembered standing with his father-in-law, and he said, you know, your mother-in-law is the most stunning woman I've ever seen. And I had to smile sitting there listening to that. That man spent his entire life talking that way. You start desiring what you have, and you've won a major victory. But Jesus is not done. Look at verses 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, and so forth. Now, please notice that this is not intended to be taken literally. You know, some of my hearers might be aware of the very sad case of an ancient Christian by the name of Origen, who actually castrated himself in supposed obedience to this command. You know, what makes that especially tragic is that Origen is the father of what has been called the allegorical method of Bible interpretation. I mean, that man took everything allegorically and almost nothing literally. So of all the things to take literally, what you see my point. When we get to chapter 7, Jesus will speak about the guy who's unaware that he's got a Douglas fir tree in his eye. That was not to be taken literally either. So what is Jesus telling us? Uh, First, he wants us to know that we need to deal radically with sin. Whatever feeds a sinful imagination must be cut off. You know, someone's going to say, I can't be on a beach and not lust. Well, don't go to a beach. Cut that activity out. Does that sound radical? Good. Let it be radical. Someone will say, I can't be on the internet when I'm alone. So don't be. Cut it off. I can't help but dream about the perfect man. Well, stop reading those soppy romance novels. Ask yourself, where are you most tempted? And cut yourself off from that thing. Be radical with your sin. And women, let me say something to you. Do you know you can dress in such a way as to look beautiful without being provocative? Be radical and men. You can treat women with grace and never make a relational gesture towards her that would be construed as being alluring. Be radical. Why? It's better to lose that sexual titillation than to be thrown into hell. If you really thought that your eternity was at stake, wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you treat everyone with modesty? Wouldn't you learn to make your spouse the object of your attention? That's what the seventh command is all about. Let's learn to desire that which God has for us.
0: John, I think it's safe to say that the battle with lust is one that most everyone has struggled with. Uh, But the reality is we probably can't do anything about it on our own, can we?
1: Yeah, the the, uh, power of the Holy Spirit is available to us. Now, I do want to say that we continue to be human and we continue to be sexual beings. And desire and sexuality are related, and I would have argued that if there never had been a fall, there would still have been desire, but the desire would have been placed towards our spouse, and it would have served uh, the purpose of you know, childbearing and, uh, and developing intimacy. I think what the fall has done, it's broken everything that's holy and righteous about sexual desire— and so the idea of, you know, separating ourselves from those things that heighten the temptation, relying on the Holy Spirit in these things, and also being in a relationship of accountability where we're open with people about these things can help us grow in Christ.
0: What is the real issue when it comes to sexual sin? Well, Jesus says it's about coveting something that is not your own. Only when we acknowledge the root of adultery can we begin to deal with it, first in our minds and then in our actions. A reminder that all of us must be vigilant and radical when it comes to overcoming the flesh and becoming men or women who honor God with our bodies. I hope this message has resonated with many of those listening to Jesus teaching on this very important issue. Don't miss our last message of week two in this series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached with Dr. John Newfeld, as we look at the issue of divorce. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Will you partner with us to tell the good news and proclaim God's Word day after day? Well, more than ever, people in our nation desperately need to hear and be transformed by the truths found in the Bible. We passionately believe that God has placed back to the Bible Canada here for this purpose, to tell the next generation about the One who has come to restore and redeem humanity. So today, we invite you to join the Partner to Tell campaign by becoming a monthly partner and help us continue to make a difference this year and far beyond. With many others, you'll play a vital role in sustaining what we do month after month, day after day. In 2016, our new goal is another 120 new partners, and we need your help. So will you become one today? For more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or even call us right now at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 and partner to tell.